Hello and welcome to the Event Manager Podcast, the podcast for event professionals who want to stay ahead of the game by learning from the leading innovators in the event industry. My name is Miguel Neves and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of EventMB. And in this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Martin Sirk, the owner of Sirk Serendipity. In this episode, titled The Flight to Quality, we talk about the flight to quality across the event industry. We talk about the real purpose of meetings. We talk about how events are more about rituals than content because they give us a sense of a shared purpose. We talk about how remote workforces may mean more regional-wide meetings to build culture and promote understanding. We talk about how smart destinations use resources, including people and companies, for the benefit of events that ultimately benefits the destination itself. We talk about future predictions. We talk about failed meetings, merged meetings, and whole companies or departments attending meetings as a sort of retreat. And we talk about how the meetings of 20 people today are the events of a thousand people in the future. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation and I invite you to check out all the previous episodes on our website. And of course, to follow or subscribe the podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the this episode of the Event Manager Podcast. Uh, today, I am joined by none other than Martin Sirk, the owner of Sirk Serendipity. Martin, it's really nice to have you on the show. It's a real pleasure to be here, Miguel. Great stuff. And Martin, we've known each other for, for quite a long time now. Um, for people that don't know who you are, could you give us a little overview of who, who is Martin Sirk and how did you become Martin Sirk? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, so ancient history, uh, I got into destination marketing by accident. Uh, I was trying to get into tour operating, but missed the interview uh, or failed the interview and ended up by accident getting into British Tourist Authority, as Visit Britain was first known. Spent time there and then um, saw a job in the meetings business where I had zero experience, apart from two weeks during graduate training, uh, and ended up as uh, being in charge of all the conference business in Brighton. Uh, following that, got headhunted by Hilton to help launch the London Metropole uh, Hotel, uh, the, the big new convention facility in London, uh, and then uh, got the ICA CEO job seven years after I'd previously applied for it, but my, uh, my predecessor took seven years before they decided to leave. And so I got that job and did it for 16 years. Uh, for the last three years, I've been running my own consultancy, Cirque Serendipity. Uh, serendipity because it's the, one of my favorite words. Uh, and I also think it's one of the key things that meetings do uh, that is unique to them. Uh, we can talk about that later if you want. So I've been, I've got some regular clients, uh, two tech startups, uh, Cubify, who have a great content curation tool called Learning Toolbox, uh, and Wordly, which is an AI-driven multiple language uh, interpretation system. Uh, and I'm also collaborating with the Global Associate, Association Hubs Partnership, which is an alliance between Brussels, Dubai, Singapore, and DC. But having said that, I've done loads of projects with uh, the likes of IMEX, Site, UFI, Destinations International, TEDx, uh, and a number of companies as well. So I've, I've had a really interesting, busy three years, even though most of it's been spent with no physical meetings taking place. Very interesting. That's quite, quite, a, quite a, a summary there and a, quite a, a life lived in events. Um, now, one of the things that I, that I particularly like about you is that you're, you're very curious and always interested in understanding events and what makes them, what motivates people to hold events. And, and one of the areas that I know you're particularly interested in is this idea of, uh, maybe paraphrasing a little bit, the real purpose of events and this idea, particularly when it comes to academic and scientific and association events that really kind of drive change, drive knowledge exchange. Um, 
tell us a little bit about you know why this is something that you're you're fascinated in and about mm -hmm. and uh, and maybe you know why it's so hard to tell that story. I don't think that that's necessarily top of mind for everybody in the industry. Why yeah, do you think that I, is? You're you're absolutely right. I, I think it, the, there's a there are a lot of reasons um, why this is so, but. Uh, I, I first had my revelation, I guess, back in about 2004, where I heard somebody from Singapore first present the idea of meetings aligned with economic development strategy. Uh, and up to then, I'd been thinking of meetings very much in logistical terms, bed night terms, uh, in, in that kind of superficial tourism metric way. Um, but that presentation, actually, it was 2005 in Uruguay at an ICA Congress, and it was Aloysius uh, Orlando from uh, Singapore uh, who gave that presentation. And it, it changed my way of actually thinking what meetings are all about. Uh, and our, our industry has had a habit of talking about all meetings being good. And that, that becomes logical when you talk about the jobs it supports, about the, the economic spend of the delegates. Uh, but I actually think we should be asking a different question, and that is not all meetings are all meetings. You know, meetings are good, but is this a good meeting? And I think that allows us to actually really dive down into what's the meeting for? You know, does it add to the sum of knowledge in the world? Does it reduce the amount of uh, uh, disinformation? Um, does it actually help the delegates to improve their lives in some way? Uh, does it help the organization become more, more um, sustainable or successful? Uh, and also, you know, does this meeting help to deal with some of the big societal challenges that we face? Uh, I think once we start asking those questions, then we, we get a bit clearer on how to actually do a much better storytelling about our industry. But, but the, the challenges we face are, many, are manifold. Uh, one is that we frequently align ourselves with other types of events. We become the events industry rather than the business events industry. Uh, and when we're up in competition against sports, culture, music, even pubs and hospitality, um, it's pretty clear that we're the Cinderella in the room. Uh, we are not the most sexy industry. And partly that's because we're a meta industry. You know, meetings serve a purpose which is separate from the meeting itself. Uh, and so I don't actually have a complete answer to this, but I know that we have to get much, much better at talking about outcomes and impact rather than process and bed nights. That, I love that quote. Meeting serves serve a purpose that is separate from the meeting itself. I think that's that's really fascinating. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I know you've been involved in in efforts to to tell these stories or to kind of mm -hmm. improve the way that 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 we're able to explain these things. Uh, could you let us tell us a little bit about you know which initiatives you, you you've been a part of or anything that you'd like to highlight in in that sort of uh, world? I suppose the one that's most prominent is the Incredible Impacts uh, initiative that was launched uh, when I was CEO at ICA, uh, which was in partnership with Best Cities, uh, where we actually got the associations, the association leaders themselves to talk about what good their meeting actually served, what, what projects they'd put together that would actually improve uh, medical outcomes or improve, find solutions for intractable problems, or even simply allow a subset of their community to participate in ways that they hadn't done before. Uh, and the, the prizes for this were, were chances to profile those stories, which I think is really important, but also provide some seed money that would allow those organizations to develop new pro projects and new initiatives that would create impact. Uh, I'm also a huge admirer of some of the, the uh, campaigns that came out of Australia and out of uh, Sydney and Melbourne in particular, which put the scientists and the doctors and the business leaders at front and centre, talking about what happened at those meetings that could not have taken place unless it was held face to face. You know, about the, you know, for, for example, policymakers don't watch webinars. If you can get a policymaker to your meeting, on the other hand, you can actually help them to understand the thing that you're trying to get across to them much more effectively. And I, I remember a, a, 
a, I think it was biotechnology professor from Australia talking about how the opportunities for advocacy that were developed by holding that meeting in Australia actually enabled double the, the amount of funding to go into this particular area of research. And that, that type of story is really important. The problem is that type of story is still not sexy enough to get into the general population's mindset. It plays within a certain sector, and that's really important, but it's still not, not enough. So you, you mentioned policymakers don't watch webinars. Uh, I, I would hazard a guess that during the pandemic they sort of had to but um wh yeah. why is that is that kind of linked to that serendipity uh, concept it, well i think it, it it goes to the heart of what can't be done unless we meet face to face it's extraordinarily difficult to build genuine trust uh, you can have algorithmic trust but genuine trust happens through body language connectivity it's extraordinarily difficult to get across and debate complex topics online. Uh, for that, you need people to be there scribbling on whiteboards, you know. I mean, obviously, we've got new tools like Murals done a fantastic job of, of providing that kind of project management tool. But, but to really get into the heart of the complexity, you need to get people face to face. And the same thing goes with advocacy to policymakers. These are often not simple issues. You need to be able to sit down, have a cup of coffee, have a glass of wine, have that conversation, really understand why they don't get it, and then pass it back. Uh, and you, you mentioned kind of serendipity, you know, my, I say my favorite word, you know, the positive accidental discovery of new things. Uh, and that happens when you put people together who don't necessarily know each other's work, don't know each other's areas of, of specialization, but they happen to come across each other and have that conversation. Uh, and that can be absolutely uh, uh, unique in terms of the solutions it finds, because it takes researchers, for example, away from the incremental type of work that they're doing to look at a problem from a totally different perspective or suddenly realizing that there's a new tool that they weren't even aware of. So that, that kind of opportunity is extraordinarily difficult, not impossible, extraordinarily difficult to manage at scale online. Now, I, I tend to agree with, with what you're saying, and I'm not questioning it anyway, but have you seen kind of scientific evidence of this, this idea that the face-to-face -face communication is well, so different? I, I think you've actually hit the nail on the head there. Uh, and that is that we, at, as an industry, we need much better metrics in order to, to measure the ROI and to justify and to, to make the argument that the the value of holding the meeting is so much greater than the carbon cost of flying people together to get there. Uh, and I think there's a lot of new valuable work being done by the likes of Geneviève Leclerc at Meet for Impact uh, that, is, uh, uh, that is actually looking at developing these new ways of measuring the, the true value of networking, the type of projects that are being developed uh, the dollar value of the, the, the lives saved by new uh, impacts being, being made by certain medical conferences. Um, I think the, uh, another example of someone that's doing great work is over at European uh, Society of Cardiology, who I know for years have been doing a lot of very uh, quite expensive and in-depth research looking at how the ideas that are generated at the Congress are translated into changes and take up of uh, the best work practices. Uh, and then working back, going from that to say how many lives were extended or saved um, from that, that process. Uh, others, I think uh, the World AIDS uh, Society did great work of documenting in storybook fashion rather than in uh, sort of quantitative measures. So they, they actually, from, from one event, they got all delegates to write in with a story of how what they learned at that Congress actually helped to improve some outcomes, whether it was um, uh, developing country uh, uh, home visit uh, outcomes, you know, new training methodologies, new take-ups. So I, th I think there's lots of really good single examples within associations, within organizations, but as yet we haven't got uh, a framework that everybody agrees this is how we're going to measure it. 
So collectively, we can't go and say, this is what the industry does. We're constantly taking thousands of stories, trying to mesh them together into a, a cohesive whole to then go out and talk about our, why our meta industry matters. It gets very convoluted in the sense, and, and I have a sort of feeling that it would be great to have some scientific measurements, but there are there are lots of stories to be told as well. And we know yeah. that stories resonate with the public really well. So perhaps a, a mix of stories and scientific evidence I, is I, I agree. I, I think I think so. But I mean, and there there are destinations that are that are getting involved in that. You know, I think of my my global association hub partners, my Brussels, Dubai, Singapore, DC are very good at storytelling. Copenhagen has probably been the world leader at telling these stories and actually working closely with um, uh, scientists and psychologists uh, and uh, specialists in meeting design to actually uh, really present themselves as, as a destination that cares about impact and especially on citizen-centered impact and how hosting that meeting in a particular place is beneficial for the the people who live there. So I, I think there's lots and lots of good work going on. Uh, and I think that, for example, the policy forum that IMEX in Frankfurt organizes every year is, is one really valuable way of, of sharing that. But we don't yet have this really kind of big story with simple wording that, that, that many, many thousands of people in our incredibly fragmented and complex industry can all grab hold of and say, this is it. This is why we matter. Yeah, really interesting. So I wanted to change topics slightly. Um, and, and, and I know you're also quite interested in this idea of uh, synchronous versus asynchronous and the idea of, uh, you know, events being live. I think that the live component of it, whether it's online or on site, is important for the serendipity and, and kind of having people's attention. But there's also a good case to be made for this idea of consuming content on demand and, and having things available later. Um, is that a fair battle? Should we take sides on that? Absolutely not. I, I don't think it's a battle. I think it, it, it's not either or. Uh, I think it's it, it's important to have both elements, um, but also to understand the role of both elements and not try to cram all of the benefits you get from asynchronous into a five-day meeting. It's simply impossible. Um, so live, why why is live matter uh, important? And I say not even it's not so much live, but it's together. It's that sense of togetherness that, that's really critical. And I think it boils down in some in some cases to the ritual of a shared experience. Uh, you know, rituals are hardwired into human DNA. They go back to the earliest dances around fires in caves. Uh, and many of the, the things that take place at life meetings are actually ritualistic. They're, they're there in order to give a sense of community, to give a sense of togetherness, to give a sense of shared purpose. They're not, you know, the, the keynote speaker is not an educational activity. It's a ritual activity of we're all here together listening to this extraordinary cool stuff. Uh, and I think that sometimes people mistake the rituals for, for content delivery and get those, those two things co to, uh, confused because a, a star speaker on stage giving their words of wisdom is not the best way to actually advance education. It, it's a way of putting people into a particular frame of mind to get them to for a short period at least, hopefully suspend their prejudices and preconceptions uh, so that the real nuts and bolts of the gnarly, gritty, smaller scale discussions can take place in the right environment. At least that, that's my view on it. I, I, I think now that we know from living online for the last year and a half that you can get fantastic TV quality uh, beautifully articulated presentations from the world's leaders uh, via, via video. And that can be projected to live groups or it can be taken uh, just in time uh, by individuals. Um, I, I think we're going to see less of the reliance on the top-down speaker. We'll still have a few for the ritualistic reasons, but I think 
packing a schedule with lots of speakers who've got expertise to divulge to an audience is going to be more of a minority uh, sport. Uh, I was just talking with some associations um, uh, at an event just two days ago, uh, and they were talking about entirely redesigning their meeting formats so that everything is going to be built around the smaller discussions. Um, and I think the quote was something like, I couldn't bear it if I scheduled a full day of top-down speakers in future. We're never going to go back to what it was like pre-pandemic. Something along those lines. And I think that's that's really, really powerful. So so to be to be there live, it's it, it's important for that ritual notion of getting people in the right mood. But it's also important for the serendipity, for building trust, for complex discussions, for um, the, the critical points in projects when you need to get everybody to buy in, not necessarily the routine times in, in talks. Um, but the event itself is, I believe, increasingly not standalone. It's, it's part of a company or an association's or a movement's 365 agenda. So the, the challenge for the meeting owner and the meeting designer is how what do you put into that four, two to five day time slot that cannot be done asynchronously over the 365? Um, and too often we try and cram maybe everything in or we, we don't think about the role of the meeting as a, a catalyst or an accelerant or as a means of evaluating progress or of kickstarting something. So we, we've got to start a, a new set of adjectives, a new set of words for what the meeting is for, I think. And then it will become more apparent that it's there to link into other stuff that's going on, which usually will work better asynchronously for all kinds of reasons. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. I was just thinking, you know, I think you make a really interesting point about keynotes setting the tone for the event and and really it being an experience, but not as, as, as a sort of delivery of content, it's not necessarily any better than watching something online. It's, it's only when you have that shared experience that it becomes really interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, for a moment, if you think about virtual events or the, the online side of events, I'm definitely seeing a trend where you may be hosting a three-day event, a three-hour event, and attendees will pick and choose the sessions that they're interested in you know we'll jump mm -hmm. in for half an hour you know book out that half an hour but not book out the three days or the three hours mm -hmm. um i i assume that means that then we'll kind of miss out on this whole environment or setting the tone because if you're yeah. missing the keynote and you're missing that experience you're not really engaged how do, how do we solve that and, and is that maybe like is it a 3d vr thing that has to come in for us to start you know, to be part of a shared experience? <laughs> I, I, the, the, there's a lot of interesting stuff on the future of work at the moment, and I think that that feeds into it. Um, there's a guy called Chris Hurd, um, H-E-R-D. Yeah, um, I follow I him on Twitter. First, I think you've, you've pointed about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and he, he highlights that when you have a globally distributed workforce where remote first is the model for companies, as it increasingly will be, that that increases the need for um, all company or regional company physical events. So he's predicting many more uh, company-wide meetings where the the distributed company comes together to actually determine and reflect the culture of the company to build that those those levels of real trust and understanding of who their co-workers are. Uh, he even predicts the idea of uh, companies starting to develop uh, uh, entire retreats where they can send people off or take over a take over a mid-sized city. And, to, uh, and hold it that way. So and I, I think it shows that you, you, you absolutely need that, uh, that sense, but you don't necessarily need to try to incorporate that feeling online. Indeed, every, every example I've seen so far is, is a pale imitation of the face-to-face -face experience. And I think that, you know, I, I think we have to work out what is really great to do online and what is really great to do face-to-face -face and not try to 
um, copy paste the entire experience of a face to face on to online. I, I think it's a fool's errand. I think it, it fails to work in, in the same way that a a really really socially distanced meeting is also face to face meeting is also a a pale shadow of a, a, a vibrant face to face meeting. It's really difficult if you're a couple of meters apart when you're trying to build intimacy and trust and understanding. Um, so I, I think it's yeah horses for courses, uh, and I don't think online you will ever get the same real level of understanding and trust that you can when you do meet together. And in fact, before before the pandemic hit, um, something I'd been observing was that. Uh, online groups were increasingly starting to develop in face-to-face -face events as a highlight of the year or as something for their regional um, uh, shared interest colleagues to, to deal with. This was happening in photography, uh, in YouTube uh, influencers, all kinds of people who have no you wouldn't have thought had any reason to get together physically were starting to design and create events which were wildly successful. Uh, so, you know, I think muddling up what each does best is, is not the way to go. I think, I think you make some excellent points there. And I think it's what, what works well about face-to-face -face meetings may not be as obvious as we think. You know, there's, there's, this, yeah. there's a sort of marketing element or, uh, you know, like the keynote brings you knowledge sort of story that I think most marketing campaigns tell that may not actually be the story that actually works, right? It, yeah. It's just the something that attracts people, but it may not actually be what uh, what's really valuable. Yeah. And in fact, I think we're, we're all guilty of being way too superficial in, to, in talking about what are the outcomes of a meeting? We don't really interrogate deeply enough what the individual delegates' motivations are for attending. We say, for example, oh, they're, they're coming for education or they're coming for networking. We don't really uh, interrogate what, what we mean by networking. Is, is this about a status thing? Is it about a gaining knowledge thing? Is it about solving a particular problem that that individual has? Uh, is it about uh, wanting to belong to a certain professional grouping or be recognized as a peer? You know, there, there are so many different psychological mot uh, uh, motivations that are wrapped up in that term networking. And I think we're still really at the foothills in terms of climbing the peak of our understanding of what drives people to really want to meet and what they are actually getting out of it. Uh, in fact, I think many delegates themselves are relatively unaware of what drives them there. Uh, I, I know when I did, did, we did an exercise at, at ICA many years ago, asking about motivations for going, and we ended up with something like 40 different distinct rationales. Uh, and a typical delegate, uh, I, I reckon, would have two or three of those that they um, were conscious of. And once we expose the whole 40 to people, they suddenly realize, oh, yeah, I'm actually getting this out of this as well. And maybe that's why I was going. Maybe I really wanted to elevate my, I want to project myself amongst my peers and get, and, you know, raise status. Those sort of things, I, I, I'm fascinated by that because that's where you find out how people truly make decisions about where they're going to something. Is that a study that was made public, or was that just an internal? Study? Uh, we shared. We shared. We, we basically we turned we turned the document into a um, personal ROI handbook that delegates mm -hmm. could download for any event and actually tick off what they were going for, and they could then link the activities at the event with those objectives, and then also keep their own personal notes of what they got out of it and what actions they would take at the event. Uh, it, it was a tool that was typically, I think, downloaded by up to 50% of the delegates, depending on the, the, the size and nature of the event. But it, it was a really useful way of letting the delegates take, take more uh, control of what they were going for. And also, I think, really importantly, it, it allowed delegates to do their homework before the meeting. And I think this this is one of those things that I 
I would really love to encourage everybody in our industry to do, which is to not, not necessarily force, but encourage, strongly encourage delegates to do the necessary homework linked to their objectives before they go to that meeting. Um, I know it's, it's a wildly utopian wish, uh, but I think that would be the biggest step in improving the quality of outcome of our meetings that we could possibly take. Really interesting. Now, going back to your point about sort of understanding motivations, is part of the reason why we don't do that? You mentioned that we probably just don't know or aren't aware necessarily. But when, when it comes to events and, and hospitality and that sort of crossover, mm-hmm. I, I would hazard a guess that some people just want to go to meet their friends or to, to socialize a bit. And is that something we, we should embrace and sort of say, look, it's, it's okay if you just want to come for the party, or is that something that we are sort of hiding a little bit because maybe it's not as serious of a motivation as we were hoping for? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, really, a really interesting one. I mean, the sense, I, I wouldn't say it's because of, it's not, I've rarely seen that people go because it's about a party. It's more about having a shared experience with people they want to have as their friends or colleagues or within their circles of trust. So I think it's it's a little bit more than purely let's have a party, Mm -hmm. but it it is about having a sense of belonging. And that's, that's, we we shouldn't disparage that. I think that is important. Um, But I I think if that's the only reason people can can come up with for going to a meeting, then it doesn't really balance the carbon cost of them flying halfway around the world to be there. I think if we're going to be taken that that seriously, we've got to make sure that there is weight to that, whether it's uh, business weight, societal weight, or intellectual weight behind why we go to meetings. If we want to be taken as seriously as I know many of us would like our industry to be taken, sure. And and you know, I think party is uh, probably a, a negative term, but I think there is a like you say, a shared experience, but also sort of catching up with the people that you yeah. see every year at that meeting. Um, now, I think that I'm also suggesting it's, it, it may be a stronger motivation than we'd like to admit, but I, I would also say that it doesn't mean that when you're there, you don't get a lot of the benefits that you may not be thinking about. You know, it Very may true. just be, you know, like you, you, you kind of have this rose tinted view of going to a specific event every year in a sense, because you see people that you like and you have interesting conversations, True. but the the kind of emotional motivation may not be a, an academic one or a sort of learning one, but a, I feel good around these people when I'm at this event. Yeah, and I think that that's part of, of our job to, in, in a way, is meeting, meeting owners and meeting designers, we need to almost deconstruct this for the delegate to help the delegate understand the rationale for going. If we're confident enough in the quality of what we do in terms of designing and and delivering a meeting, we should be confident enough to uh, make the delegates part of that process, bring them inside the tent rather than outside. You know, I'm a great believer that we shouldn't be talking about audiences, for example. We should be talking about participants. Uh, We shouldn't be talking about the process. We should be talking about outcomes and desired outcomes and encouraging all the participants, our delegates, to, to really believe that they have a chance of influencing the outcome of the event collectively and for themselves. Uh, and I think we will have better meetings and we will be taken more seriously if we can actually advance that agenda. Very interesting. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. So again, I wanted to change topics slightly. I think there's something you mentioned a while back about the uh, speaker economy. And I don't know how much of this still applies, but I think during the, the pandemic or during the peak of the pandemic, when travel was really impossible, the economics of sort of speakers and, and being paid to speak really got turned on their head. And 
Um, and you suggested that this may be a more permanent change, or maybe that's a part of your thinking. Is that still part of your thinking? And, and kind of where do you see that going? Yeah, it, it is actually. I'm, I'm, I'm currently, I'm, I'm designing an event for the Dubai Association Center at the moment, a live face-to-face -face event taking place in February. Uh, and already the, the, one of the keynotes, one of the, the, the smartest people in this space that I wanted to come and deliver something is already trying to negotiate with me about doing it virtually instead and talking about that he's now got the tools to actually deliver just as well virtually as face-to-face -face, and that it would be a fraction of the cost of him getting on a plane and, and flying there and, and the fees that he would charge for the number of days that he would be taken out of the other stuff that he does. And I, I think that that's part of the equation. If, if you happen to be uh, organizing a meeting that's based in New York City, for example, or London, and you can call on great experts who happen to be uh, within a few minutes drive and uh, commute of your venue, then I think you can build together very easily still a great lineup of top class experts in a field. Um, if you have to fly them around, they're going to be charging you for their time uh, because they have typically now developed a very strong, you know, all the top speakers I've, I've come across have developed really strong uh, virtual business models, uh, TV quality production, uh, you know, lots of uh, online tools linked to their presentation. So they're not simply giving uh, a speech. So I, I, I think that there is going to be change. I think we will still have the big star speaker for the larger and bigger budgeted events, but we won't simply be jam packing the schedule with as many of those as we can find. I think increasingly we're going to have a mix of pre-recorded content and, and live discussion, maybe with the expert joining from, uh, from a different location. I think that's an extremely cost-effective way of getting world-class presentations because ultimately what what would you rather do would you like to listen to the nobel prize winning globally recognized expert in subject x or in the third tier professor who was all, all that you could afford on your budget to be live in the room you know it, it, so i i think there'll be a flight to quality and those really high quality guys will charge a fortune to be there live uh, but they'll make it much, much more affordable for them to be there virtually. So I, I think there are going to be impacts. Uh, I think more generally, I, many meetings are going to be significantly smaller than they were before, um, especially the really global meetings that relied on people traveling long haul, because you know, friction is going to remain in travel for some considerable time, even uh, as we get to the latter stages of the pandemic, which we're, we're not yet at, unfortunately. Uh, so, and I know from talking to lots of meeting planners and associations that they understand that, that budgets are really, really difficult when you've got to almost always have the costs of switching to virtual if something happens with the face-to-face -face experience in, in your back pocket. Budgets are a real, real problem for people at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll change exactly how it will change. I, I'm not too sure. I think that there'll also be a flight to quality of the events themselves. Uh, I think there's a really good example with uh, Web Summit, the, the, the event organized by Paddy Cosgrave that was in Dublin, now in, in Portugal, um, which is getting lit every CEO of every top tech company effectively going there to the extent that Paddy has even designed a special exclusive meeting for 150 speakers to take place after the main web summit. Because those people, part of the motivation of those people to go and present there, which I guess most of them are doing for nothing, is that opportunity to be with that 149 other people. That to them is much more valuable than speaking at the event. Now, will those 150 people be as available to go to other corporate meetings where their message is important? I suspect not. I suspect they'll charge either double or triple or quadruple what they did before because it simply isn't worth their while. So there's, everything's being disrupted at the moment, but the flight quality will be, I think, a, a dead cert. Okay. Now, you know, going back to the idea of the speakers, you know, going virtually or, or having local speakers, speakers, do you think that that will 
benefit the destination in the sense that you're more likely now to have to kind of go and find experts at the destination that can really share rather than sort of you know the speakers being almost destination agnostic and you'll just fly whoever's well, sort of the most well, relevant. I, I'd, I'd switch it around actually I, I wouldn't say that this process is beneficial to destinations I would say that smart destinations will win out because they will proactively pull together the intellectual resources that they have at their fingertips to enhance the quality of that meeting. Uh, you know, if you, if you have, uh, there's a very good example of in Washington DC at the moment, uh, which is a hotbed of quantum computing. So they are organizing their own quantum computing event with their own world-class speakers. You know, you can do a hell of a lot if you can uh, extract and curate and pull together the intellectual leadership and resources in your destination. You know, Australia has done it for years. Singapore has done it for years. Uh, many uh, other, many cities in Europe uh, and other parts of the world have not actually adopted that model. It's not very common in the States, actually. Uh, yeah. In the States, it typically is driven by bed nights, delegate spend, yeah, you know, what is the, you know how, how how many square meters is it going to take up? Those kind of metrics tend to drive it more. It does sound a little bit. I know they're quite different models, but the the, the kind of German large public trade show hall model, where they run their own trade shows and certain cities become known for an agricultural trade show or whatever it is. It feels like that's sort of merging in a way because you know it's that kind of idea of the the yeah. region putting effort into it and finding the experts and and becoming known for certain areas yeah i mean london had a technology week um singapore's had water week uh mm -hmm. you know i think this kind of festivalized of event of which south by southwest is is the obvious kind of granddaddy yeah. um it is a really powerful way for destinations to to harness and exploit in the nicest possible way there their intellectual capital. Uh, and it, it goes to the, the future of destination competitiveness. You know, destinations are fighting to attract startups. They're fighting to attract talent. Um, they're fighting to ensure that their universities attract the best students and that those students have somewhere to work in that city. So meetings become then a, a valuable tool for those knowledge economy objectives. And I think we're going to see quite a shift in the way that destination marketing organizations structure themselves in future um, that is going to be less about uh, tourism type impacts and more about the, the longer term economic competitiveness argument. Absolutely. And uh, it does, I mean, it, the, the, the branding power of these types of events for a destination is, is incredible, right? And I think that <laughs> shouldn't be underestimated. Obviously, cities and destinations um, invest heavily in these events as well. So there comes at a cost, but I mean, I don't think I would know Austin for anything without South by Southwest being there. And obviously that's mm -hmm. the sort of poster child for this kind of thing. But um, do, mm -hmm. do you think it takes, uh, you know, you mentioned already the US business model. And I think it's it's fair to say that the US, that the beds, uh, heads on beds kind of model and the bed tax model for funding DMOs. Is that, limiting in your perspective uh i i think it it's not so much limiting because it it, it unlocks a huge amount of money i mean let, yeah. let's face it i mean uh, i i think vegas has a marketing budget bigger than all of the the convention bureaus outside the u.s in total um so the money is great um but what it does is is it limits um the way in which people uh look at the value of the meetings uh it it also um it perhaps um changes the the advocacy message that they have and the relationship that they have with their local governments um, because it, it's focused on infrastructure development and jobs in hospitality rather than thinking about the, the broader issues but we have seen a shift you know cities like boston like houston like uh, san francisco um, as well as you know, the Austins, have realized that, that intellectual capital is, is a really important 
thing and the knowledge economy is is a vital um future for their their economies so once they make that intellectual link between attracting the right or attracting or even building the right meetings and those broader impacts and, and the impact on their citizens opportunities uh, then they they start to behave differently and they gain an advantage especially when they're trying to pitch for international meetings where yeah. this type of understanding this type of um, partnership mentality um, really becomes valuable absolutely and and do you see the kind of future of, of DMOs being different to, you know, in terms of structure and in terms of their, their kind of outlook being different in this sort of post-pandemic reality? Yeah, I, I think so. outside the US, where there is no bed tax model, uh, DMOs have relied primarily on um, support from the public sector, whether it's the city or it's the state or it's the national organization. Um, they've they've used that support for their overhead cost and their activity cost typically has been bankrolled by the commercial partners, whether it's hotels or, or restaurants or, or other, uh, uh, other companies which are actually physically located in that destination. So um, those, those funds have always been pr pretty limited. And if you look at the money that destinations have spent on attracting industry or attracting startups or on supporting their intellectual capital there there are these other funds of money these other agencies so i think we're going to see more of a merging of those different areas more like a london and partners type of model than a pure tourism attracting the conferences type of model um, but for a long time we'll have all these things coexisting because you know, not every destination understands or uh, has the wherewithal to actually make those shifts. But it is happening. I mean, London was one of the first, um, but you know, Amsterdam has moved into that type of model, uh, and it makes sense in a very pragmatic way as well, because you can then share share much of your overhead costs, whether it's your administration, finance, uh, buying power, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You don't need to actually have one of those operations in every single agency. So you feel that DMOs, destination marketing organizations, will be more closely tied with business and attracting business and the knowledge economy in the destination? I, I think it, it, it's only going to go one way. Uh, there's kind of a ratchet effect. Once a DMO gets involved in the economic development or intellectual capital or startups or any of those different areas, it then starts to be supported and interact with different politicians, different government departments. It becomes more valuable. And it, I, I've never seen any examples where a, a city or a, a, an entity, an agency has moved into this broader area and then has moved back to a pure tourism and, and conference sales and marketing uh, play. Interesting. So it, it only goes one way, but it, the progress is still pretty pretty slow, actually. It feels like you have to cut off the the sort of the, the blood flow. You know, you're getting <laughs> this funding from tourism, and you have to sort of get you know stop that and kind of find funding somewhere else. So it must be a, a tough process for the for those involved in that. Yeah, it is. And what about uh, DMCs and PCOs, the sort of more event organizers? I, you know, PCOs in particular have sort of been agile in, in, in shifting to uh, sort of helping virtually. But now that we're, let's imagine a world where we can meet again, what do you think that, how do you think that's going to play out? Uh, it's, it's really interesting. I, I, I was worried that we were going to see kind of blood on the tracks. I thought we were going to see wholesale decimation of, of DMCs and PCOs with the, uh, when the pandemic lockdown started, pretty much everything ground to a halt. Um, but the, P, the PCOs in particular have been incredibly agile. As you say, they've, they've, they've merged with marketing agencies. They've taken over digital communication um, companies. Uh, they've, they've taken on R&D services. Uh, they've, they've amalgamated or, or joined up with tech companies. So they, they've become um, much more about the, supporting the overall communication uh, effort of their clients rather than simply being about a face-to-face -face meeting. 
Um, now, I, what, what we haven't seen any data on is how many staff have been let go through this process. And I suspect a, a lot of people have been released. And the typical, the typical uh, PCO is a relatively small company. Often, you know, it's uh, owner-managed. Uh, and it has relied very heavily on the, the bonds of trust with a relatively small number of clients and the very top people in that organization. So you can actually strip out a lot of costs by losing your junior staff whilst still keeping the trust. So I, I, I suspect a lot of people, individuals have dropped out while the companies have survived by both pivoting and working really hard at maintaining those relationships with the key clients. So that's been interesting. DMCs, I really don't know, because you know typically they are the experts on their local uh, destination. Uh, they provided, th their services are really inherently linked to face-to-face, -face, whether it's tourism incentives uh, or meetings. Uh, and that dried up entirely. So the, the fact that, that so many seem to have survived is, is quite remarkable, actually. But again, what we haven't seen is um, how many people, how many people's livelihoods have actually disappeared. And I suspect it's, it's a very large number. And the companies have been marking time, treading water, just keeping going uh, until things can reopen. I think th those in the US have, you know, the US domestic market is now pretty solid again. Uh, countries like China, their domestic meetings and travel domestically has been really, really robust. But for the rest, uh, it's been a hell of a struggle. And I, I really feel bad for those small companies and the people who've worked there because it's it's really tough. Yeah, I've definitely seen a lot of examples of that. And when it comes to industry media and also maybe industry trade shows, I don't know if we can put those two together mm -hmm. in some sense, but do you see those changing as well in, in the kind of post-pandemic world? Yeah, again, I, I think it's, you know, the, there are so many um, meetings industry media out there, so many magazines, so many websites, there has to be consolidation. I think it's just an inevitability. Um, and I, I think Skift, uh, you know, owner of uh, Event MB has done a tremendous job. And again, it's that, that question of flight to quality. You know, who is getting the top interviews? Who has got the relationships with the CEOs and the spokespeople? Uh, and I think those who have those relationships and then they can leverage it with virtual and actual events like the, the Skift conference just took place. Um, you know, those, those media are, are going to do pretty well. I think also the media who have specialized in the association world have survived pretty well. Uh, and that's because of the, the, the inherent robustness of the association meetings model. You know, associations are still booking large-scale meetings in 23, 24, 25, 26. You know, the, the long lead time um, gives confidence. And I, I think destinations have supported the media that specialize in that area. But increasingly, they have, they've doubled down on providing educational resources for associations as well. They're desperately all trying to make themselves more indispensable for associations so that when the market really does pick up, they're in an even stronger position. For the many that rely on uh, covering the corporate meetings market, I have no idea how so many have, have survived because that marketing budget has dried up horribly. And I suspect that uh, you know, it won't be coming back in anything like the same sort of form it's had. I think we'll be, be seeing a lot more innovations that, that are not simply run a paper advertising. For the industry yeah. trade shows, again, I think it's going to be a flight to quality. I, I, I love the, the work that IMX has done on keeping engagement. Uh, I'm going to be in Vegas uh, in October. Um, but the, the smaller shows, the regional shows, unless they've got a really, really strong domestic market, which serves... Uh, which, which has outbound potential. Uh, and unless they've really got relations with the buyers there and can guarantee them, I think they're going to struggle. But there's one caveat there, and that is it's, it's probably the, the longest standing, um, biggest, uh, I wouldn't call it a failure perhaps, but it's, it's one of those realities of the trade show business. And that is the, the one good lead syndrome. Mm -hmm. you know, 
if you went to a trade show, no matter how crappy and no matter how few people you met, if you suddenly have that one really fantastic lead, you go away with a rosy glow about having been there. Uh, and I think a lot of shows actually are surviving on the uh, unrigorous ROI methodologies of the exhibitors. Uh, so that that one connection making can really turn around a two or three day show. Uh, right. And I, I suspect that as um, as there is a greater reliance on really good ROI methodology, that people really evaluate what is the most effective marketing channel and most effective marketing uh, activity they undertake, then I suspect we'll see um, the, the mid-range shows um, dropping off. And again, let's yeah. face it, I mean, how, how many buyers are going to go to all those shows? The buyers themselves are going to want to go to the ones that are really can't miss, not, oh, why not? That makes a lot of sense. You, you mentioned budgets already when you mentioned corporate uh, media, uh, and that's something that we're definitely paying a lot of attention to. And you mentioned associations are still booking, um, but it feels a little bit like the industry uh, is is telling a story of recovery, which is you know I'm hopeful for, and I hope that it's true, and I hope that it does work. Uh, but as a society at large, we're still we still don't know the effects of of, of the pandemic and we expect that there will be recession and, and it would be challenging to come back to, to the same levels of business. And I think across kind of corporate travel across the, the globe, budgets have been slashed, you know, and especially because you kind of look at 2020, there was no travel. 21, there was a little bit, or maybe the start of 2020, you try to kind of make the budget for 22 and you go, do you really need to travel? I think almost every company is really asking that question. And if the answer is, no or a significant reduction then isn't that going to have a lot more consequences across the industry and i think corporate and association if the you know if the attendees that are corporates themselves can't travel or are not like willing to travel isn't that isn't there a bit more of a, a dip waiting to happen here are we are we seeing this a bit too positive or am i just reading that wrong <laughs> uh no I'm, I'm an eternal optimist by by nature but i've been incredibly pessimistic and and i've I've been very skeptical of the we're on the road to recovery narrative uh, for some time. Uh, I, I think we're going to see some fundamental changes. I think you're right. Um, we're going to have a flight to quality. Um, individuals are themselves going to make choices to reduce the amount of travel they're doing, both because of risk and budget uh, and policy within their companies. Um, it's... But, it, but it's, it's unpredictable. It's very, very difficult. And especially at, at the moment, I, I was just talking to uh, a friend of mine who runs a large trade association, uh, and he's absolutely feeling totally overworked because some face-to-face -face meetings are now starting up and he's required to be there, but the demands of the online world are still increasing. So there's no, there's no dipping in the digitalization pressures uh, that are falling on on senior executives. Uh, so the, e even the pure attention span of people is being stretched uh, and and can't go back to what it was like before. Because if you're in an association or if you're in a company, you're going to have to devote more of your time to your digital and online strategy and activities, which leaves simply by a process of elimination less time to physically go to a meeting. Um, so I, I think we will see a fallout. We will see many organizations either having failed meetings, which lose money, or they're going to start doing things like uh, merging their meetings together or uh, embedding their meeting. I, I, I was just following uh, Paddy Cosgrave's tweets about that, the, the, the incredible rise of mass company registrations to Web Summit. So what, what it seems is that rather than hold their own corporate meeting, they are taking their corporate meeting to Web Summit and embedding it in that larger event. So, so yeah. we may see things like that happening. Uh, the optimist on me says this, on the other hand, and that is, I, I believe, that the, the pandemic has seen the, 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 the largest increase in formation of new associations. 
but these associations don't yet know that they are associations and they certainly don't call themselves associations. Uh, that is, they're, they're communities of shared interest. Uh, and we've seen a, an absolute explosion in these communities, many of which are now starting, because of the length of time they've been engaging with each other, they're starting to put down roots, they're starting to gain concrete form, they're wanting to, to meet with each other. Uh, and I think that, that we are going to see a great deal of new event formation as a result of that. But it, it will not uh, exactly substitute for the loss of volume in some of the other meetings that we historically had up to 2019. So I think we're going to have to see a fall off. We're going to see winners and losers in that field. And then if we look carefully, we're going to see this whole new ecosystem of new meetings starting to take place. Maybe they're going to be localized, but very international in their topics. Maybe they're going to be connected with all kinds of other things taking place simultaneously in 20 or 30 cities around the world. The, the exact shape that they take, I, I don't know. I suspect it's going to be a real kind of uh, Cambrian explosion of different forms and different uh, uh, structures. Um, but I'm optimistic for the longer term. I think, though, that we're going to have four or five years of really tough times for many people who are in this business. Um, and equally, we're going to see lots and lots of people saying it's coming back, it's coming back, it's coming back. Uh, because, you know, we have to tell ourselves a good story. But meanwhile, the market's shifting and the smart destinations and the smart companies are looking for new ways of doing stuff. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And do you think that these associations that don't know their associations will actually become associations? Or is that something that they will actually shy well, away from and just stay? Does, as... it, does it matter that they are or not? The fact that they are, that, that's ultimately what an association is. It is a community of shared interest, whether that be a societal, scientific, business, or social. You know, yep. That's what an association is. Uh, whether you, you, you don't need to pay a membership fee, if the association decides that everybody who shares that interest simply has to contribute in order to be a member or simply has to sign up and share their data. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think uh, if we simply go by an old school definition of an association or, or it has to look like X or Y, then we're going to miss out on lots of opportunities. Uh, I, I know that some associations are worried that this is competition. Others see this as a way of embracing uh, new, uh, new potential members of the community. And they may not be that traditional member who pays their dues every year and joins, but they, they could be the way of engaging the new generation. Absolutely. And I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I guess I asked the question more because if you look at you know, ICA, who you were previously uh, the CEO of, and the ICA ranking, if you're, if you're trying to direct your business to associations, but they're not showing up on the radars that you're using to find that business, you may need to find some new radars. Well, I, I think everybody, every destination, everybody in the business has got to relook at their, um, their CRM systems and their way of conducting research on potential business. You know, the, the events of 20 people today are the future events of a thousand people. You know, the fact that an event that had 1,000 or 10,000 people in 2019 is in no way guaranteed to have those sort of numbers in 2023 or 2024, not least because almost every CEO, of every, every association I've spoken to has said that strategic uh, reassessment and re-engineering of their educational and events programs is on the agenda. So the way people did things in the past, the hist history is dead in a way. Um, so it means that destinations need to far more deeply interrogate associations about what their future plans and aspirations are, rather than relying on the historical data. Really interesting. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked a lot about this VUCA thing, right? The volatility, uncertainty uh, in, in the last 10 years or so. And, and I don't think anybody was expecting a pandemic to be the thing that would really bring that, you know, make that very visible to everybody. But but we are talking about it. And then, you know, it does happen. Yeah, I think you're right. It, we, a veil has been ripped away and our uncertainty has been revealed. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. We could go on for hours, but I think for the benefit of our listeners and for our own schedules, I think it's good to, to wrap up. I want to ask you the last question that we ask all our guests to uh, suggest another guest that would be a, a good addition to our roster at the Event Manager Podcast. Okay. I, I think uh, one of the best thinkers about the whole association side of meetings is Dan Rivlin at Kenes. He'd be there, but I'd also talk to Jane Cunningham about the, the vital importance of facilitation and connectivity. Uh, and I would do a double act of Eric de Groot and Mike van der Viver about meeting design and what it really means. Excellent suggestions. I know them. I Yeah, I know Eric and, and Mike pretty well and Jane reasonably well. So Dan, I'm not so familiar with, but I know him as well. So uh, we'll make sure to invite them. That's four suggestions or maybe three with a double act. So really appreciate that, Martin. Thanks again for being on the show. And it's been a pleasure. Yeah, pleasure was all mine. Thanks, Miguel. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Event Manager Podcast. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For the latest news and the best articles on technology and innovation in the event industry, head over to eventmb.com.